we have titled this series, Understanding Current Events and the Light of Bible Prophecy. If nothing else, perhaps we will better understand at the end of this series the urgency that is in front of us because of the uh, presence of so many of the things that are foretold in Bible prophecy <clears throat> that must come to pass before our Lord returns. He is going to come and rapture the church, and then we have a laid out um, program of seven years that we have been examining. We come this morning to chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. And uh, verse 1 uh, serves as our launching text. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. The great white throne judgment will climax then with all unbelievers from all ages of time being cast into the lake of fire and brimstone for eternity. God is going to judge them according to the things that are written in the books that we referred to in our study last time, the books of works that record the activity and actions of each of the families, of each of the individuals, of each of the nations. All of that is going to be revealed in the books. Now you might note that when we go before the judgment seat of Christ as believers, there is no mention then of the books that are opened at the great white throne because we are not there on the basis of our work. We are there on the basis of His work and of our childlike faith that appropriated that amazing grace that equipped us then not only to be accepted in the kingdom, but equipped us with the ability to represent the kingdom in our daily walk. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire and burning brimstone because their works do not reach the standard that God has required in His perfect righteousness and justice. And so they'll be cast into the lake of fire and burning brimstone where Satan and the fallen angels are and there they are to be tormented at night and day. That's an interesting term because when we move into eternity, we have no distinction between night and day. But the language is graphic as it uses this as a metaphor to explain then the ongoing contingency in man's terms of what's going to transpire. It's tragic and awful even to contemplate the agony and the despair that will be there. But God in His perfect justice and in His holiness has ordained it so and given every one of them 
that will spend eternity there an opportunity to accept His grace, His gift of eternal life. In chapters 21 and 22, the final two chapters of the book of Revelation, we're given a glimpse into eternity itself. And so let's see what God has revealed here to us. Not much, but enough perhaps to whet our appetite and uh, understand the distinction between it and the lake of fire and brimstone. Beginning with verse 1 then of the 21st chapter we read, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. I think it's noteworthy that as we move into this final section of the book of Revelation, everything here is on a positive note. It's been negative almost from the onset after the introduction of chapter 1. And even in that introduction, there is the description of Christ in His role as judge. And now we seem to have a complete shift in atmosphere when we get to the 21st and the 22nd chapter because the tone is on a positive note. John begins not with the destruction of the present earth, but rather with a new heaven and a new earth and then an explanation because there's a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. They're destroyed totally as we see in the description in Scripture. He says the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Even that tone is softer than he's used in talking about the uh, climatic judgments and catastrophic events that are going to occur. That dreadful tone of judgment is gone now and we have one of optimism and one of tranquility even though it does report concerning those things, we have a modification as the hope and the opportunity for life for all is presented again. We have a destruction according to the scripture then of the first heaven. The first heaven. There are three heavens that are identified in scripture. Science and the Bible are in agreement on two of those heavens. Uh, many of the scientists miss out on the understanding about the third heaven. The first heaven is the atmospheric heaven, which immediately surrounds the earth. It's an area in which the birds fly, and now man flies as well, and uh, identifies the atmospheric Heaven. Whenever there's a reference to the first heaven, it is this atmospheric heaven. And it reaches up all 60 to 80 miles by scientific uh, measurement. Uh, and then we enter the stellar heaven, or what has been referred to as the uh, celestial uh, 
heaven by some, but that kind of overrules the third heaven. So I prefer to use the the word stellar. That it refers to the stellar heaven. That is where the sun and the moon and the universe uh, and all the galaxies uh, are. That is identified in Scripture as the second heaven. And science agrees with those two heavens. But they miss out, as I said, on the reality of the third heaven. The third heaven is described in Scripture as the throne room of God. It's where the spirits of the saints go now upon their death. And it is the focus of our objective as we look with optimism and confident expectation to eternity. Second Corinthians tells us about this third heaven. When Paul writes, he says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, of such a one caught up to the third heaven. The heaven that is described here is that atmospheric heaven in the text. The first heaven is destroyed. That is the atmospheric heaven. It is identified in Scripture as the uh, habitation of Satan, as the prince of the power of the air. That word air identifies the atmospheric heaven around us. The second heaven was involved in uh, the tribulation uh, judgments that we saw. Remember, we saw stars fall from heaven. We saw a third of the stars uh, destroyed. We saw a third of the light of the sun destroyed. We saw a third of the light of the moon destroyed in our study. And during that period of time, there was judgment already upon the, the second heaven. But now the first heaven comes into uh, destruction as it is defined in the Scripture. Not only the atmospheric heaven, but the earth itself. Now it's important for us to understand that the destruction of the first heaven and the earth is in order to make way for a new heaven and a new earth. And, and that's why John inverts the process and gives us the confidence uh, of a new heaven and a new earth before he discloses the fact that this first heaven and first earth have been destroyed. Some teach that there is not going to be a literal destruction of the earth, but rather of renovation. There was a renovation in the beginning as God thought out the earth and prepared it for man and they uh, like to pick up on that idea and go forth with uh, the teaching that it's going to be a renovated earth. But the scripture is pretty clear. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 we read, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the heaven and the earth fled away and there was found no place for them. So that sounds pretty descriptive to me. But in Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, 
the apostle writes, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and this is pretty descriptive, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. One of the psalmists in the Old Testament in Psalm 102 writes, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old as like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou thou change them, and they shall be changed. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail thee. It was a time when men scoffed at the very idea of this destruction and replacement. But with the discovery of nuclear fission, many of those same scoffers have now become doomsday prophets. Uh, You're hearing that a lot right now with the threat of nuclear weapons uh, uh, in the war between Russia and uh, that which is taking place now. Uh, That threat itself... uh, it's fascinating to me that many have used the word Armageddon and talk about the Armageddon situation that is about to come to us. Jesus talked about this fiery judgment concerning the earth and actually compared it to Sodom and Gomorrah in Luke chapter 17. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them. And even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. It's only the long suffering of God that prohibits the sudden destruction of the earth today. Second Peter chapter three verse nine says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So our text in Revelation 21.1 said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, we have written, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. You'll notice the plurality as well of the new heavens. The idea of a new heaven and a new earth is now no longer restricted to the New Testament in our study of Scripture. It was declared to the Old Testament saints as well. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. In Isaiah 66, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And then we have thrown into the text this statement, and there was no more seed. Three quarters of our present earth is comprised of seeds. The seeds are a very vital part of our life here upon the earth. And uh, the water cycle is essential under the present conditions uh, in the survival of all kinds of life forms. But in the new earth, that will no longer be the case. Because it will no longer be the need for God himself shall reside there. I believe one of the main purposes of the seas today, in addition to providing that water cycle for us and from the agricultural and uh, and the atmospheric uh, circumstances, is that it serves as a separation of the nations. Satan is the father of internationalism. The first United Nations building was started in the, in Babel following the Noahic flood, and God interfered with that by confounding their language, and he had instructed them to scatter upon the earth. Uh, as we study uh, the different civilizations and the different uh, cultures and nations, it's necessary that there be this kind of separation in order that the truth of God might be preserved in some place, in at least one place, and we have followed that through the history, uh, we are able to see how when an area that has uh, been the center for the proclamation of the Word of God and of the Gospel, when they become uh, re- disrespondent to God in that, and they let down the bear, some other place picks that up and it's carried on from place to place uh, you can it's an interesting study in history itself to see how the core of the gospel message even in the church age has developed as well as in the old testament in the nation uh, of israel and their failure there were always others that came along to pick up the banner But in the new earth, we won't need those natural barriers uh, to preserve uh, the uh, internationalism that will be 
legitimate at that time because there will be one judge and one king, and that being King Jesus. In verse 2 of Revelation 21, John says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Word of God describes two Jerusalems, one that is earthy and one that is heavenly. The earthly one is the physical Jerusalem, but there is reference to a spiritual Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem as well. In Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 25, For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The writer of Hebrews says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. During the millennial reign, Christ will rule on the earth in the earthly Jerusalem, that geographical location that we now identify, that's where Christ will sit upon the throne of David, and for a thousand years he will rule. But that is coming to an end. In eternity, he will rule from the heavenly Jerusalem because this earth, remember, is going to be destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth is going to come into being. That city that is heavenly is identified as the holy city. It's identified as a bride that is adorned for her husband and it appears that it is suspended above the new earth as a satellite. The earth the new earth will be formed and suspended above that new earth will be the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem as a satellite. There is a dwelling then with God and man. We are told in verse 3 through 7 of Revelation 21, And heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The tabernacle in the wilderness during the journeys of the children of Israel represented God's presence and his power and glory in their midst. In Leviticus chapter 26, 
we are given this information. If you walk in my statutes and you keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield her increase and trees of the field shall yield their fruit and your threshing shall reach unto the vintage and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely and I will give peace in the land and ye shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I will rid evil beasts out of the land Neither shall the sword go through your land, and you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. This passage, and I I think we have the wrong location of it listed here. Uh, The word translated tabernacle uh, in uh, the earlier text is the word skene, and it means a place where God dwells. God will dwell among the people and that's manifest for eternity. What he revealed to Israel in their uh, living uh, as his people upon the land was a forecast, a future prophecy of that which he was going to bring about. He could bring a semblance of that in their earthly form, but it was going to succeed that by far in the heavenly presentation. We find that the word tabernacle identifies the place where God dwells, and we see in Revelation 21 then that tabernacle is going to be with man. The question is raised, will we see the Father in visible form and will we see the Holy Spirit in visible form in eternity? Well, Scripture doesn't indicate clearly concerning this issue. The second person of the Godhead uh, that we came to know as the Lord Jesus Christ because of His physical birth He is the one that is identified as the revealed person of God, but we're not told how God will be manifested in eternity, and so I'll leave that to simply saying we'll have to wait and see. God will be with them. He will be their God. They will be His people. He will wipe away their tears, there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain. The former things are passed away and everything, all things, are made new. John records for us then in Revelation chapter 21 beginning at verse 8. This eternal distinction. The fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
And there came unto me one of the seven angels, John said, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And he talked with me saying, Come hither, I'll show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written therein, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east were three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof, and the city lieth four square. And the length is as large as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chiroparsis, and the eleventh a jansiath, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were uh, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. And here's the reason. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there they shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. An eternal distinction then is made concerning those who are described as overcomers and those who are unbelievers. The Bible answers the question, who are the overcomers? In 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, says, 
Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. But this we know, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, our faith. Here's the question. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 8 of Revelation 21, we saw reference to the unbeliever. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now the Gospel of John chapter 3 verse 18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In Romans chapter 4, verse 6, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Those provisions are given to the overcomer. 1 John 5, 5 again, Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So there's a harmony between that list of sins. No doubt you at least know one or two people who have done some of those things. You may not have to look beyond yourself to it. But we are no longer classified in that list for we become overcomers by faith in Jesus Christ. The passing of the old earth uh, and the old heaven. Then once again in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Prophecy does not deal at length even enough to satisfy some of our curiosity and answer our questions that are posed by those who want all of the details. Even Paul, who was caught up into the third heaven, which is described as the throne room of God, was prohibited. He was not allowed to tell us what he saw not permitted to reveal those things that he saw and that he heard. So prophecy carries the reader to the end of the millennium. The references to the eternal state are very few. Isaiah 65 and 66, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 3, 2 Peter 3. And together with those disclosures that we have here, in chapter 21 and 22, as the book of prophecy is closed out. But apparently, the new heaven will be the home of the believers 
of the church age. This new earth will be the residence of the redeemed ones that are not part of the church age. We need to see there is a distinction in the eternal dwelling place of church age believers identified as the bride of Christ being in the new Jerusalem and uh, then all other believers from the beginning of time to the end of time apart from the church age will be residing here upon the earth. He said, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A lot of references in Scripture speak about the earthly Jerusalem and some also then about the heavenly Jerusalem. The spirit of our God and of our teacher gives us some information within each text as to whether referring to the present Jerusalem or the Jerusalem that is above. And we have a a breakdown in your study guide. I've given you some additional information for that that you might relate to it. But in summary, looking at verse 3 then, John said, I saw, uh, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. He will be with us in some knowledgeable fashion on our part throughout eternity. And of course, the presence of Christ is going to be visible as we are able to document that. We're told then in verse 4, and look where you find this in Scripture. In verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. It is not in the present heaven, not in the present paradise, that this Scripture makes reference, but not even in the millennial reign, but in eternity itself. It is then that tears are wiped away. It is then there's no more sorrow, no more pain, because the former things that we knew are no longer retained. All sins then will be obliterated, obliterated. They'll be destroyed. (laughs) We find that we will not have any sin nature. An interesting study is in the marriage of the Lamb and the church in the identification. Uh, if we If we go into eternity, how is it then that this occasion of sin could not arrive again? And the only answer to that that I can find is volition will have been eliminated on our part at that point. When marriage is introduced to us in the Bible, it is a requirement of the woman to give her free will to the man. 
It is a requirement of the man to love her with a self-sacrificial love. And the church becomes the bride of Christ, giving our free will to him because of his love and provision for us. We will be quick to do that. In earthly marriage, uh, uh, it takes a bit more uh, examination. And well, we'll see how it plays out. But in the new heaven and the new earth, apparently volition is sealed once and for all. And we are there in obedience to him. The one on the throne in this view for the kingdom has been delivered to Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. He is the one on the throne. Verse 6, He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Alpha being the first letter in the Greek alphabet and Omega being the last letter in the Greek alphabet came to be used as an idiom of the sum total of all. He's the beginning and he is the end. He is the sum total of all. And in verse 7 he said, He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. How do we overcome? By believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We find then the fate of the unbelieving, the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire. This is described then as the second death, physical death, but second death is separation from God forever. And that's the state of those who do not overcome by calling upon the name of Jesus for salvation. In verse 9 we saw, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, the one that had one of the seven vials full of the seven plagues, and he invited John to come and see the bride, the Lamb's wife. And what John saw, he said he was carried by the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he was shown the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And uh, its brilliance is of such that there is no need of the sun or the moon. Verse 11 says, Having the glory of God and her light was like the light unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Jasper stone. The description that's used uh, here is the symbol of precious stones, uh, primarily because they are costly and durable, and the Spirit uses that language to give us some idea of the brilliance and the glory that is going to be there. We saw it had a great wall uh, high. There were 12 gates. On each gate was... uh, the name of one of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, we find in the foundation the 12 tribes of Israel are listed as well, but we have also the 12 apostles of the church that form that foundation. 
The gates are described as each each gate is a single pearl, and uh, uh, the word gate is is always used as a uh, means of access. Uh, and Jesus said, "Verily I say to you that you which have followed me in the right in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory." You shall sit upon twelve stones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we're going to be part of that judgment that will occur. And yet, the those that have been uh, declared as righteous, there is, for each of the tribes, there is a an eternal monument to them in the gates of the city. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them were the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then he measures the city we saw in verses 15 uh, and following. And he that talked to me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof and the city lieth four square. The length of it is as large as the breadth and he measured the city with a reed 12,000 furlongs. That relates to 1,500 miles. 12,000 furlongs, 1,500 miles. And the length and the breadth of it are equal. Uh, And he measured the wall thereof 140 and 4 cubits, uh, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. So from the measurement that's given here, we have a cubical city that is suspended above the new earth. Now, there is a group uh, who believe that it will not be a cube, but that it will be a pyramid. I don't know if they're from the Egyptian persuasion or whatever, but of course the sign of the pyramid uh, throughout the years uh, has been of interest to scientists and uh, to archaeologists and other explorers. And if you were to take the measurements, if the top of it, uh, it could be square at the bottom and, and form a pyramid. Uh, but uh, I don't find any clear documentation that would indicate uh, that to be the case and uh, uh, simply uh, throw that out as some of the suggestions uh, by Bible scholars. Now, the materials that make up the city uh, and the foundation uh, are listed as well uh, with each of the uh, foundations. Now, remember, the foundation is, among them is listed the 12 apostles in the 12 gates. Uh, there is uh, uh, room for exploration if you want to explore some things to look at the various representations of each of the layers of the first foundation, Jasper, the second sapphire, and um, the meanings uh, that might determine concerning those stones. Now, the we, we know that gold represents divinity. The twelve tribes of Israel had a birthstone as well. As a matter of fact, the the identification of birthstones uh, relates way back to Israel and and to uh, in the breastplate of 
the high priest, there was a stone to represent each tribe, and each tribe had its own identity in that. Uh, I set out one time on a pursuit to try to find the harmony between uh, the different stones and and their meanings and their identification with the different tribes, and then to relate that to uh, the twelve uh, apostles uh, as well. Uh, there's a lot of obstacles if you start out on such a pursuit uh, because uh, uh, the words have changed their meaning from time to time uh, and even uh, uh, words, uh, names that we use uh, have changed their meanings. And so uh, I've not been uh, challenged. I, I was too challenged by the obstacles that uh, were were involved in that to pursue that any further. But if you're just bored waiting for the rapture, uh, you might go ahead and, and pursue that on your own. We indicated then that there's no sun nor any moon, that the Lamb will be the light of the city. And uh, uh, there is the mention, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. Now the word nations comes from the word ethnos, which means ethnics, which is brought into English by the word ethnics. But there's uh, as many different opinions as there are commentators as to uh, the identification of that and uh, whether there are going to be, if it's going to be internationalism, uh, of course, Christ will be the king of all, but it simply seems to me to identify the various ethnics that make up this new heaven and new earth. The gates of this city will never be shut, not by day. And then it adds, at this point, there is no night there. So the gates of the city will never be shut. There will be access from the earth to that city. Remember, the city is suspended above the earth. And there will be access, continual access that is there. The absence of sin and the presence of the redeemed is referred to in verse 27. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So sin, in all of its various forms, is going to be eliminated. Never-ending beauties of the New Jerusalem are indescribable, but it is because of the Lord's presence there that makes it most desirable. The end of time is coming. The stages, the one here on earth and the one in heaven, are being prepared. And as we're reminded by the current events that we are witnessing, it will be a reality. Jesus is coming again. The future, for those who accept Christ, is a glorious future. 
the bridegroom will come in the air. He'll take us to his father's house where he is currently preparing a place for us. He will take us before the judgment seat, which is the awards banquet, the awarding for our service as believers and our commissioning for the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom. And that event, when he comes to get us, to take us there and uh, then uh, through the judgment seat to the marriage chamber, that will trigger what we have seen in chapter 4 through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. In chapter 20, we saw the climatic events. In chapter 21, we've seen a glimpse into the future. In chapter 22, we'll wrap it up. The seven years of horror that are going to be visited upon the earth are unimaginable. And so we are compelled with an urgency to share our message that God has revealed to us with everyone that we have the opportunity to share with. We each have specific gifting as we represent as sojourners our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords here upon the earth. Your gifting defines your ministry. God's circumstances directing your life provide for us the direction of that ministry. They are divine appointments. We've talked about that throughout this series. And I will continue to raise the question because we so often miss it. Did you recognize the divine appointments that God brought into your life this week? Perhaps there were none that were recognizable. That may be because there were none, but there's a good chance it wasn't because it was because we weren't looking and we missed an opportunity. Remember, as we work together as the body of Christ, we do the work of representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it all begins as an overcomer. It all begins with salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you received that gift? The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon His name? If so, you are now a sojourner. You're an overcomer. And the future is glorious. But we are here to sound the alarm. To issue the warning. To offer the invitation to whosoever will. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. 
We pray for wisdom in the understanding of how it fits in our life and in the daily application. We thank you for that which you've revealed concerning the future, for we can be at peace in the midst of warfare, knowing the outcome. Give us, we pray, an understanding of the direction that you're offering every day and a conviction to conform to it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.